Welcome to Regulate Tech. This is our 35th episode uh, yes. with me, Nicholas Beer-Lumblad, and uh, with me, Richard Allen. So, Richard, we just gave our names, and there's power in a the name. There's a lot of power in the name. The author, Ursula K. Le Guin, used to, in her magical world, uh, she said that if you know someone's name, you have power over them. And that power then allows you to force them to show their true form. And sort of basic theme in a lot of theology and a lot of, of stories is this notion that there's power in the name. Um, and we've seen this for ages now uh, on the internet as well, this notion that that there's a power in knowing your real name and the question of whether or not we should allow for people to to conceal their true names and use for example different kinds of an, uh, anonymity technologies and so so how it, we're certainly going to have this debate over and over again draw out for us what some of the <laughs> major tenets of this debate are yeah, I mean, we're in that um, sometimes the sort of something must be done space. You know, there are undoubtedly problems, harms that are caused by people who use the internet. Uh, and as a result, it's kind of natural for policymakers or regulators to kind of go, well, what can we do? Something must be done. And they zero in on this idea of anonymity as something that ought to be addressed or somehow there should be some new regulation in the space, potentially as a way of reducing those harms. But I think often when they do that, there's a lot of confusion about, firstly, what they actually mean. Is it about, as you described, Nicholas, the power of the name? Is it about you doing things under your own name? Uh, and that's the converse of that is this sort of famous cartoon way back when of the dog at the keyboard and the caption underneath reads uh, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. It's, you know, this idea that um, people are are behaving or acting on the internet without associating those actions or that behavior with their real identity. That's one piece of it. And then the other piece is, look, when something has gone wrong, uh, somebody's done something that is sufficiently problematic that you want to kind of track them down and and take them to court. Are you able to trace them? So so there's one piece of the debate is is literally using a real name, uh, using the name uh, under which you're known in the real world when you're carrying out actions on the internet. And the other is as a separate debate, but these two often get really confused. This question of look when someone has done something wrong. Are you able to track them down, go knock on their door and arrest them for the thing that they've done wrong where it's sufficiently serious? So th there seems to be a lot of different questions here, but it starts with a, almost a sociological question, which is, do we behave differently when we are attached to an identity or attached to some kind of, of true name um, or, you know, as compared to when we are anonymous? It seem, If you look at the research, it does seem as if we, we are slightly less social in our behavior, slightly less collaborative when we're completely anonymous. It, is that not like core design problem of the Internet? I, mean, I think there are um, different elements. So, so one piece is, look, if somebody is determined to do bad things, so they're setting out very deliberately and explicitly to do behavior that you, you know, we would typically call something like trolling, then obviously the internet opens up huge opportunities for the deliberately uh, bad person, whether that's you know trying to scam you out of money or trying to say offensive things just to annoy you. Clearly, it's, in a sense, easier to do that on the internet um, because you can reach a larger audience. I mean, actually, in the real world, you, you know, you can run into a crowded public space and 
say really offensive things and run out again uh, and 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 people don't know who you are you don't you don't when you go into a public space you don't go hi i'm richard allen i'm now going to do something offensive so you can in the real world you're anonymous when you go into a bar or when you go into a public space um, but obviously, that's limited by the physical reality. On the internet, you can do the equivalent of that. And we saw that actually over the last year with the whole sort of Zoom bombing thing of people who would just take pleasure in trying to find an open Zoom meeting, dropping in, saying offensive and racist things, and then dropping out again. And, and that's, say, that's obviously something that the internet, the the scale of potential targets is huge. But I think that's very different from saying, look, the the regular person – uh, so the URI or, or actually the vast majority of internet users who are not setting out to be deliberately offensive, but just to express themselves sometimes nicely, sometimes offensively, does their behavior change? And I think there's, it's much less likely that their behavior changes. In other words, the person who wants to say really rude and offensive things about political leaders, for example, is, is I think, quite likely to do that in their real identity they're not dependent on anonymity necessarily to do that and we see again and again that people are you know almost wanting to be identified with the rude and offensive things that they've said online so i say is that i think we need to separate out deliberate explicit trolls people who are sitting out to go onto the internet to hide behind anonymity to do bad and potentially illegal things from ordinary people uh, who their behavior on the internet may be actually much closer to their behavior in real life. In other words, the person who would shout the racist thing in the pub or on the football terraces is shouting the racist thing online. The anonymity is not the key distinction. The, the key question there is like around that person's propensity to say racist and offensive things. And we also, I mean, there is, we, we need to sort of build a conceptual model here in order to discuss this in, in a way that makes sense, I think. And one, one of the things we have to do is that we have to, we have to look at the sort of the whole spectrum between fully identified and fully anonymous. And there's a vast space in the middle where you have different kinds of pseudonyms, right? Where your pseud- where, right. where the pseudonym can be more or less persistent. You can have, like I have my, my World of Warcraft character is called Gorthak. And yeah. he's been around since 2005. Uh, and actually, he's, he's an interesting example because he's a pseudonym that has now transitioned to my kids because they take over my account. And so there's a persistent pseudonym that has a certain mm-hmm. behavior, certain reputation, has a membership in a guild, etc., etc. But nobody really knows it's me. Um, but that persistent pseudonym certainly encourages pro-social behavior because what it, what I know is that I accrue reputation over time that will allow me or not allow me to be a member of raids or you know, do dungeons together with, with others, etc. So the persistent pseudonym is, is sort of this vast, undiscussed thing in the middle. So you have identity, you have pseudonyms, you have anonymity. Then, as you just pointed out, and I think this is really important, it's a relational concept. Nobody is completely anonymous to everyone. That's sort of that just doesn't happen. You're anonymous or identified vis-a-vis different domains and audiences. So, so you can choose to let a number of people know who your pseudonym is, which means that you're actually identified when you interact with them. Uh, or you can, as you said, just sort of dive in and out of a discussion and you're effectively anonymous because there is no way to trace back to your ephemeral uh, pseudonym who you really are so so we have this this sort of conceptual space between identity and anonymity with with pseudonyms in the middle and it seems to me that whenever we discuss this we immediately go to to the ends rather than think about okay how do we design those pseudonyms because that has to be the better question right I mean, pseudonyms are the norm and social media and the internet. And remember that, I mean, I, 
I um, in the early days at Facebook, Facebook used to put out an argument which I, I was never entirely comfortable with, but they they uh, felt was effective to say, look, Facebook's real name policy is about you know good behavior that people behave better when they're using their real names and and the reason they were sort of having to defend that again ironic in the context of today's debate where people are are sort of tilting very much in the opposite direction was they were under attack for not allowing pseudonyms uh, and certainly you know in a country like germany people were taking facebook to court to try and sue for the right to be able to not use their real names uh, on social media uh, which i say is quite a different sort of context from today say so Facebook would make the argument and say, well, you know, if you're using your real name, then you're going to behave better. And then, of course, Facebook acquires Instagram, which doesn't have a real names policy. And so, you know, there's this kind of inconsistency here. And and I think you, you're exactly right that the the power is in whether or not you want to have a good reputation for your account, for your presence. And so an Instagram uh, account doesn't matter that it's not, you know, it's called, uh, you know, I love... Uh, uh, apples rather than Richard Allen. It kind of doesn't matter. The point is, if Richard Allen is operating I Love Apples, I want I Love Apples to be an account that has a great reputation that people want to follow. I, you know, I want to engage with people. Uh, I actually think just on on the Facebook real names policy, which is exceptional, and again, we should make that very clear. You know, TikTok, Twitter, uh, uh, Instagram, all of these other services don't don't do this. The reason I actually think that the Facebook real names policy exists is because of the nature of the content you're sharing, which is special and different. And the nature of the content, the fundamental proposition of Facebook is you're sharing intimate family information, you know, photos of your kids, discussions about events that have taken place within the family with other people. And there you want a much higher degree of reliability that they are who they say they are. And you want to engage them in the real identity. I want to engage with my mum as my mum. Uh, I don't want to engage with my mum as I love apples. <laughs> so so the, the nature of Facebook is actually that it is specifically suited to being a real names environment because of the nature of the business that's taking place on it. It is not typical for the internet. For most of the rest of the internet, you're right. It's about having a reliable pseudonymous identity. That's actually the sort of optimal uh, model for most of the rest of the internet, because you are expressing. You know, it's, it's not just about Nicholas Lumblad or or Richard Allen. In fact, in your case, the World of Warcraft example, Nicholas Lumblad is not going out fighting and defeating all those creatures. It's Gorthak yes. going out fighting and defeating those creatures. So actually, having that pseudonym. It, it works much better in that world than people going around under their r- real names, you know, going questing with uh, John Smith and Jane Jones and all of this would just not be as much fun as going questing with people who've created an identity that works for that world. And and this is actually a key point because there is huge value in the fact that you can target pseudonyms to different domains and be different people. I mean, this is one of the things that, that researchers have said is extraordinarily uh, liberating, not just for, you know, for someone who plays World of Warcraft, but somebody who wants to try out a new identity or who belongs to a minority in their own country and can suddenly participate without the risk of being identified in trying out other kinds of, of roles in, in society and sort of... And and so, so to, since we're ignoring the pseudonyms in the public debate, and it's just you know these anonymous trolls versus disidentified and well-behaved citizens, we risk losing out on something that has huge value in the middle—the ability to to splinter and fracture your identity into multiple pseudonyms across different domains, and the liberty that that really gives you. Why why don't we see that more clearly? Yeah, I think we tend to think in terms of absolutes. It's sort of like everything has to be one way or another. 
And actually, this is a much more complex world. So I actually think the right approach is to say, look, you should have the appropriate identity policy for the nature of the service. That doesn't sound, that's not dramatic. It's like everyone should, should be real names or everyone should be pseudonymous. You know, the, the German attack on Facebook was to say, no, we want to break down your real name policy on Facebook because we believe everybody has a right to be pseudonymous, even where, you know, that's inconsistent with the nature of the service and actually could lead to real privacy problems. You know, this this ability to, to share with people with confidence was quite important to that service. So, so you say you've got the pseudonymous activists kind of going, no, everything should be pseudonymous, even where it doesn't make sense. And then you'll have the real name people going, well, everything should be real named, even where it doesn't make sense. And I, I say, I think the honest answer is, look, we should be looking for the right policy for the nature of a particular service. And actually, when we say right, what we often mean is, what is the policy that makes people feel most comfortable and most likely to express themselves? And this is where we get to, I think, the nub of this, which is really as a, a freedom of expression debate, um, uh, that you know, uh, if you're building and designing a service, you're going to look for a policy that optimizes for people wanting to be comfortable expressing themselves on that service. If Facebook thought that, you know, people would be much happier on their service using pseudonyms rather than real names, they would switch the policy. The policy is not, I, I don't think, a, an article of faith. It's more a judgment that that's the right policy for that service. Um, equally, if if uh, Instagram decided that actually real names would make people feel much more comfortable, they would switch in that direction. The, the reason neither of them is switching is because they've both sort of settled on a policy which which leads to the greatest amount of engagement and expression. Um, so I think that's probably right, that each service should be able to choose the, the sort of level of pseudonymity or identity or anonymity that they want. And also, I think, to the extent possible, give controls to the user so that they can choose the domains within which they're identified or not. So you get tiers of identification rather than the absolute binary one or zero you're identified or not. But but it's it, it leaves one question unanswered, and I think it's a really interesting question, and that is the value of... Re- so, safeguarding some anonymity in the overall system. So go beyond the services. Should should anonymity of some kind still be allowed in the system? And and that goes to the free expression question quite clearly, right? Where you have some people who benefit from anonymity in regimes that are less democratic because that's the only way that they can safely or somewhat safely express a dissenting view. And and this is we, when we talk about this, we we sort of we, we tend to forget that this historically has been a big deal. Think about Publius, the the, the pseudonym used to publish the Federalist Papers in the U.S., for example. Um, it was published pseudonymously, or you know, in a sense, um, under the, the veil of anonymity, um, because that was the best way to to raise the debate that they thought needed to be raised in those papers. So, how do we? I mean, that seems to me to be a really important question, that there's a, some preservation of anonymity overall, not, that it's not outlawed. So here's where we switch into the other half of the debate. So the, the first half of the debate is, when I share something online or do something online, am I doing it as, as Richard Allen or as am I doing it as Gorthak or any other, I love apples or any other kind of invented name that I've got? And so that's the first part. Now, some people will say, look, I'll accept that, that you can express yourself under a pseudonym, fine. 
but as long as the service provider has got the data associated with your account that allows you not to or, or disallows anonymity that allows you to be identified in the real world and so some people suggest this as a as a way of sort of uh, fixing the problem which is to say look you can have your pseudonymity but the service provider must record some kind of hard identifying information we can get into the different types of potential identifying information that means if ever you cause a problem, we know that Gorthak is Nicholas Lumblad or his kids. Uh, we know that I Love Apples is Richard Allen. And this, this sort of anonymity question then raises a whole second set of issues. Again, it's not simple and straightforward. And to your point, Nicholas, it's partly about, you know, is there a space for individuals uh, who are doing something which is regarded as subversive, but morally or from a human rights perspective, permissible which would be your your activist that requires a level of judgment um or or generally you know how do we feel i I think much more about you know the extent to which the provision of hard identifying information would uh limit all of our sense of uh freedom to express ourselves and freedom of expression is not just literally like you know are you able to say uh what you're saying it's also a question of do you feel surveilled do you feel freedom? Do you feel free to say it, even if you're not saying it? Or do you feel constrained? And a lot of the questions around this are hard identity and requiring online services to capture hard identity information rests on this point that people who propose it, part of the reason they're proposing is that they think it will act as a form of self-censorship, that people who have provided hard identity will be less likely to express themselves in bad ways. And people who oppose it would say, look, actually, the provision of hard identity makes people feel less less likely to express themselves in all ways. So in other words, in order to catch that small minority of people who may express themselves badly uh, or in ways that are illegal or problematic, we're actually going to have a chilling effect on the speech of the entire population uh, for, for various reasons. One, because they're uncomfortable providing the identity information in the first place or two because having provided that hard identity information they do just feel less comfortable saying what they want to say even where it's not illegal or problematic this this sort of just makes me think of the the early science fiction uh, novella uh, true names by Werner Vinge where where the the world was you know simplified it was set up in this way that you had a virtual reality in which you could be anyone uh, and you had a pseudonym there that was persistent and over time you could act and you know be anyone in that space but you also of course had a real life identity and what they call that real life identity was your true name and if there was a breakthrough the virtual wall to reveal your true name, then the government could essentially just find you or your enemies could find you. And, and that was sort of what the, what the novella was about, the, sort of the risk of the true name. And so it, it seems to me that, that uh, it, there's, there's like this, this sense that if you, really, uh, if you really want good free speech, you also have to have real hard accountability for what people are saying. But that doesn't necessarily, that's not necessarily the case, right? Wouldn't it be wouldn't it be better to differentiate accountability to give people a, a way to say, I'm saying this and I want to be held accountable for it in some spaces and then be able just to try things out and anonymously in other spaces. But what would differ then is how we value the speech, not how much we identify the speaker. 
there's there's Simone Weil, the French philosopher, has this. You know, she she was asked to essentially set up a constitution in one of her books, um, and and uh, and there is a there's a really interesting sort of just section there where she talks about free speech, and she says free speech should be absolute. You should say everything you want. You should be able to to explore all ideas. And then she says, but if you say something really horrible and you mean it then you should be held accountable. So this notion of meaning something, intending it, really intending it, is where she puts the sort of cr- the crux of the free expression discussion. And then she notes, mm. like, in passing, that seems hard to do legally, but you lawyers need to fix it. <laughs> there, there's something there too, I think, isn't there? I mean, I think this is, again, one of those debates that tends to be polarized, and we, we sort of look at it in a binary sense. It's actually much more messy. So, that, so you're either saying, look... You know, um, every service provider should store hard identity details so that everybody could be held accountable for all of their speech. Or at the other end, the perception is, well, you know, no service provider should ever be able to track anybody down so you can say what you like, Simona Vile style, and and never be uh, tracked down. Actually, the reality is, look, um, today we have a true identity, a true name, which is our mobile phone number. Actually, the vast majority of us, our mobile phone number is associated with so many things online and, and you know, is potentially traceable in the real world to such an extent that it acts actually as a, a real identifier. And that tends to be associated with most of the accounts that we use online to, to speak. The real question is, t- to what extent is there friction to get from you know, I've said something problematic to find me. And actually, the debate is about those levels of friction, I think. Uh, it's, no, it's not absolute. Uh, I, I am, if I'm a normal internet user, I'm nearly always traceable in an absolute sense if somebody can be bothered to do it. And I say the way they would do it is, you know, if the service provider, as they typically will have, has the mobile phone number associated with the account, you go to the mobile phone provider. In some countries, you wouldn't have got the SIM card without actually registering with identity details, uh, actually not in the UK or Sweden, the countries where we live, where, interestingly, I think when it's been debated, they've decided, you know, from law enforcement purposes, they're okay with you not registering. Yeah. Uh, uh, from a sort of f- f- uh, societal freedom point of view, that's seen as too burdensome. Again, quite interesting as a comparator with what's being discussed often in the online space. But yeah, even where you've not registered your SIM card, your mobile phone provider knows where you live, like you know, because that's the place where you most commonly connect into their mobile phone network. So, if you're doing things on a mobile phone, you are traceable, like pretty much uh, everywhere, uh, unless you're taking sort of special steps uh, to avoid that. But the ordinary citizen is traceable if they're using a mobile phone uh, to connect to online services. But say so the question then becomes: to what extent do law enforcement want to do that? And I think this is the often the bit of the debate that is is sort of least uh, uh, talked about and and should be top of mind. So again, classic thing, we look for a technical solution to what is actually a societal question. Um, The reality is, look, today, most of the people who say rude and offensive things online, if they're illegal, could be tracked down and prosecuted. Yeah, it's- but we don't track them down and prosecute them. There's there's reasons for that. There's you know law enforcement reasons. There's actually the fact that you know a lot of those cases, if they actually went to court and the person put a defence, there's a good chance they wouldn't end up actually being convicted of anything. It's very rude and offensive, but it's not you know strictly illegal once it goes in front of a court. Um, and so there's so the way we do that is by by shaming them. So there are like these TV shows or journalists that hunt down the people who have written uh, inane things, and then they confront them with them. And so I mean, this is so interesting because the point you're making is that we're all inferentially identified. 
you know, potentially, yeah. right? I mean, pretty, pretty much. If if we wanted to, there's friction in there. And, and law enforcement does complain about the challenge of getting, you know, data from service providers overseas and things. And there are there are some issues around that. But but essentially, if the will is there, in the vast majority of cases, somebody use a regular citizen using a regular internet service is going to be traceable. And you can do it through textual analysis as well, right? You can see that this yeah. is the way Richard Allen writes here, and this is the way that this, you know, I like Apple's is writing, and you know, there's a 99% likelihood that it's the same person. And so inferentially, you're identified uh, hands down everywhere, uh, just depending on the cost of the inference. How much does it actually cost you in terms of friction, to your point, to to make the inference? Um, but so that seems then to, to um, that's, that's about the second part of the debate, as you said, about whether or not law enforcement should have the ability to break through the veil of anonymity and find out who is doing what. And what you're saying is they could already today. They, they, they could. And and um, and then some people are grasping for sometimes the quick fix, uh, um, which is to say, look, in a sense, at the most extreme end, we will ask all of these service providers, these social media companies and things to collect you know, the really hard identifying data like passports and ID cards and things like that. Uh, um, and still sort of not recognizing, look, the, the challenge is not whether you can identify the people, the challenge is whether or not we can be bothered to prosecute them uh, and whether or not our laws would actually allow them to be prosecuted. You then get instead of that, say the classic sort of political response is, well, look, if only the internet companies collected all this sort of proper identifying detail that would solve the problem. And that's addressing the wrong issue and actually introduces massive new risks of its own, which I think far outweigh any of the benefits. You know, um, having a, a upload of somebody's passport or ID card versus having their mobile phone number from a traceability point of view is just marginal in terms of benefit, but introduces sort of dramatic new risks into the equation. Hmm. And and I think the other thing the the, the other um, point about that I think is that, that if you end up doing that for everyone, then you're going to end up doing it globally. Because if if all countries start doing this, I think no country is going to want to be the country where you can be anonymous. There's going to be a race to the bottom or top, depending on your view of the issue. Yeah. Uh, and we then move to a state of a highly identified internet. What happens? I mean, it seems to me if that happens. I wonder if if it also doesn't contribute to the trend that we have discussed earlier about the splinter nets, because identity you de- you then rely on the identity in your country much more than you rely on cross border identities. That's right. It has also splinter effects. So let's just let's just uh, take w- one example. You know, if you said today, um, Facebook, for example, must collect uh, hard identifying information of all of its users. Yeah. That means that Facebook is going to have a database of, you know, all of the identity documents of all of its hundreds of millions of users in Europe, and those are all going to be available to the U.S. National Security Agency because they can't not be, uh, you know. If, uh, and again, if, if uh, the U.S. National Security Agency knows that Facebook has a database of everybody's identity documents around the world, you know, it's going to, uh, depending on U.S. law, but it's going to have the power to go and ask for that information 
Uh, and by the way, that's all going to be covered by secrecy requirements. So then the response of Europe and uh, uh, Max Rems and our friends here is going to be to say, well, you know, it's even less acceptable that people uh, from Europe should be using Facebook service because now they're sending their identity documents into a massive database that's accessible by the NSA. Therefore, we must splinter Facebook and have a European Facebook. And so you, see, you can just see that, the, and, and never mind if it's a Chinese service, you know, we, Europe brings in a law saying you must collect identity documents. Uh, the Chinese service says, fine, I'll collect all the identity documents. You've told me I've got to do that. And then we'll say, oh, no, but you can't you can't because you're Chinese and that's not accepted. So, you know, we can just see how this is a, uh, becomes really, really problematic. So I, I hope from a, you know, just a sort of practical point of view, we discount this idea of services collecting identity documents. I mean, t- two other aspects to it. W- one is obviously it concentrates users in the services that are most trusted. I mean, you and I and any, anyone who's out there would, would you know, we're not going to give our identity documents to random services we've never heard of. The random service we've never heard of may be the early stage of a service that's going to go on and be big. So that that is an issue. But also, I think we should be really honest and say, look, the motivation, I think, sometimes in putting forward these proposals is it's coming from people who don't like social media. Mm. They just don't like it. They they would rather that fewer people use it and that they use it less. Um, and so, again, the the friction barrier when you sign up of putting in your identity documents is a very high bar. And it is going to, whether it discourages 5% or 10% or 15% of people from signing up, it is going to reduce the number of people who sign up to social media services. Now, if you're you know, on the pro side, you're going to say, well, if you've got nothing to hide, why would you have a problem? It's only going to discourage the bad people. I just don't think that's true. It's going to discourage good people as well. And I actually think the pro side should should be honest and say, yeah, actually, we just want fewer people using social media. So we put up these barriers and you end up with a smaller population of just the nice people using social media. Um, these barriers are a good thing. Uh, but I, say, I think we need to be really honest that uploading identity documents to social media services has has these significant consequences. Firstly, it creates, to say, this huge sort of security threat issue which i think would contribute to balkanization or splinter net uh and secondly uh, it will have the effect of discouraging people from using all social media services and especially from using newer smaller social media services so let's explore a different scenario um currently within the european union there's a huge project ongoing to figure out public identity infrastructures right the idea here is ei does um the idea is that there should be different kinds of identity services throughout the european union and those identity services can then be used in federated ways so for example in sweden we have something called bank id uh, which is a consortium of the banks uh, own an id service that is now being used to also log into um, uh, public authorities and agencies and different kinds of other actors. So it's it's sort of becoming your your passport in a sense. So what it suggests is that the locus of identity might not be the social media services. The locus of identity might be, for example, the state. And the requirement might be that the social media services um, for every domain or country or, or jurisdiction they're in, uh, 
uh, enforce the use of one of these publicly provided identity uh, infrastructures, for example, um, or semi-publicly in the case of bank ID. Uh, it, that would that would create a slightly different dynamic. It would create a dynamic in which the, there is a point of identification somewhere, an anchor point to your identity, but not within the media services themselves. Right. What do you think about, is, does that not seem to be a much more likely uh, evolution over time? It's possible, but I think it's even more creepy in a lot of ways, because then what we're saying is that the government will have a database with your unique citizen's ID on it, and associated with that, they will have links to all of your social media accounts. Uh, because if their social media account, they, you know, if, if the idea is to store a link between a hard ID and a, an account in order that there's this traceability, if that link is not being stored at the social media end, it's being stored at the government end. And I find that even creepier, the government database of all of my social media accounts. And I think everybody should should be extremely concerned by that. I mean, I think, again, I'm going to not satisfy anyone by saying, look, it's not an either or. I actually think with identity systems, it's horses for courses. So, you know, where you're doing financial transactions, where you're doing transactions with the state, you do want a hard ID uh, system. And then I think there's a spectrum of requirements all the way through to kind of very soft ID or soft ID or no ID for things that are uh, um, expressly and hopefully anonymous. And we think of things like visiting a website. And in fact, actually a lot of people are, uh, in regulation are trying to make it so that when you visit websites, it's more anonymous. And that's the whole push around cookies and trying to deal with targeted advertising and data collection. So one end of the spectrum, I'm visiting a website uh, and again, people say, yeah, if, as long as it's not an extremist website or a bad website. But basically, uh, there are lots of circumstances under which when I visit a website, a health website, for example, or any, any kind of website, actually, a newspaper website, I, you know, I don't think that anybody should necessarily be able to trace my use of that website. So that's truly anonymous through sort of in the middle social media services and things where they may want to have some accountability and traceability. And I'd say something like a mobile phone number probably does provide sufficient traceability and accountability through the other end of the spectrum to financial services, government services and things where it's hard ID. And I think the mistake would be to put the wrong ID system or associate the wrong ID system with the wrong service and associating these hard government IDs with uh, social media and other um, expressive services on the internet, I think does cause these problems because I say it's either one party or the other is going to have a massive and potentially very high-risk database, rather than the status quo, which is when there is a problem is when you make the association. And actually, I think that is much more parallel to our real-world experience. So if I, if I go into a bar and I want to talk to people, I have to walk in and announce, I'm Richard Allen, I'm now about to say anything. If you have a problem, you know, barman, register uh, that I'm Richard Allen of such and such an address. And if in three weeks' time somebody has a complaint about something I said in the bar tonight, you can come and find me. No, you speak freely. If there's a problem and you say something really problematic, they call the police. The police come and they check my ID at that point. So you check the ID when the thing has gone wrong. You're not preemptively collecting everybody's IDs well, just in case. The bar is such an inter- the pub or the bar is such an interesting example because with your youthful demeanor, you would be asked for an ID if you wanted to buy a beer. Uh, 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 right? I mean, yeah, they're not going to store it though. No, they're not uh, going to store it, but you have to flick your credentials, right? And they will yeah. look at it and they will say, like, yes, you look slightly over the age of 18. And so you're yes. going to be <laughs> by this point. 
but there, so there's, and I think that makes your point rather than detracts from it. I think that yeah. what it suggests is that it's not only the point of identification, it's the nature of the kind of identification you make, whether it's a, you know, a, a, an ephemeral identification, like the case where you buy your, your pint, or if it, it's yeah. a, a much more sort of, this identification is now the first piece of a long chain that will lead to ultimate accountability for something you did. That's right. And so uh, yeah. the, the sort of the pint example seems to be less problematic for me. How, how do we think about those? Yeah, I mean, they use, so actually, let's tease this out, because I, we do like bars as an example. Yes. But it, 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 and, and, but the real world is always helpful, because people say that, well, in the real world, you know, you can't do this, that, or the other. You're not anonymous. Well, you actually are, and, that, and we forget that. I mean, you're, you're anonymous to an extent. So you walk in the bar, you're right. If, if you look young and, and um, wholesome like me, you may get asked for your <laughs> identity. But uh, that would be ephemeral. You flash it, on you go. Um, they will have credit card details for every transaction you've made. They may have CCTV around the around the the pub. But as I say, I am not being asked to identify myself to the entire pub. Um, I'm not being asked to use a real name, in a sense. The real name, I'll be known to those people who know me. I won't be known to the people sitting next to me at the bar, and I can use any name I fancy with them. Uh, uh, and I say, if something that later goes wrong, there are all these different ways to trace me through the credit card slips, uh, through the CCTV, all these different things. But but that doesn't happen unless and until something's gone wrong. It's not a preemptive collection of hard ID, and it's not a preemptive requirement to declare your identity as a real name to people in public. So I think it's very analogous to social media, where if something does go wrong, there's all these points of data that can be used to identify you, but you're not being asked to do it preemptively. And the reason you're not is that the preemptive declarations actually are the thing that have that chilling effect. And I think that's the thing that's underestimated or, or actually welcomed, shall we say, by some of the some of the opponents go, I want it to be preemptive because that will make people behave better. So what they're really proposing is the equivalent to when I walk in the pub, I have to declare to the pub who I am and I have to lodge a photocopy or a scan of my hard identity documents behind the bar in the pub in the hope that that will make me behave better in the pub. And, and they also uh, want access to your thick identity, not just your thin identity, which no, is the exactly. other thing. They want a compiled identity that allows them to see, okay, if you did this, did you also do that? And so I think that's another aspect of this, that you're, you're sort of, you're flicking your ID to get your pint is, is a very, it's a short ephemeral identification and it's really thin. It just gives your name and age. That's what they're looking for. But but the part of the problem with with the uh, uh, demand for uh, for thick identity in social media services is that that's that allows you to do so many other things and to infer so many other things about you. So we also need to make that distinction between thin thick identity. But I want to I want to sort of let's pursue this this pub example now. Now let's introduce a new actor, a Swedish person who wants to come join you in this pub. Uh, that person yes. then has to show a passport to leave their country. They have to have a passport to come into the new country. When they go to the wonderful Bloomsbury Hotel and sort of checks in, they show their passport and notes are taken um, because the passport is used to identify you not just as a customer, but often also because if you're asked who is in your hotel now and where is that person in many countries, that data is available then to the police. So yes. that's around travel. There is a huge amount of identity requirements that, that do, don't seem to exist when and we seamlessly move cross-border on the internet. Isn't there an argument for saying that the real world is just not a good analogy here? That what we need to do is that we need to think about identity and anonymity in sort of a more cost-benefit effect. What, what is it we're trying to accomplish? Because you could do that for the internet as yeah. well, right? 
I mean, I think I think it is an analogy. I think actually it is a good analogy in the sense that each of those transactions you described that there's a functional reason for it. And, and again, our sort of core data protection principles is the minimum amount of data, hopefully, that is necessary to achieve a particular objective. So crossing borders is a government giving you permission to come into their country. They need a hard identity in order to be able to give you that permission these days. Um, actually, the hotel one is interesting. I find that deeply offensive uh, when I, I go to Spain. Spain is the example of, uh, you know, it goes back to the Franco era and and trying to keep tabs on the population that they would collect the, uh, the, uh, there. The hotel not only has to collect the data, but it has to ship all of that data to the police within a certain time limit or they get fined. So it's actually proactive provision of data about citizens' movements to the police, which I, I am amazed that that survives under general data protection regulation, all of these privacy laws that Europe's brought in, but somehow it does. I don't know if it's not which happened. Anyway, um, but the point being that it should be the minimum that's necessary for a specific purpose. And then the question comes back to, with online services and social media, what is the minimum necessary? And again, back to our pub example, I think most of them would say the minimum necessary for being in a social space is very little. You know, uh, uh, there's very little there. Interestingly, during COVID, we've all had the experience where that was raised for a very specific reason. Uh, So in other words, pubs have been checking identity when you go into the pub, and it's caused a lot of discomfort. People have felt uncomfortable about providing it, but they've accepted it in most cases because they could see that it's tied to a very specific health requirement. Uh, you know, it's about keeping them and their fellow citizens uh, safe from a literal fatal disease. And so, again, there's an interesting question now that we debate. If we debate it now in terms of that that uh, experience, is are we seeing? You know, the social media public spaces as as dangerous as pubs with COVID uh, running riot. In other words, that the data collection is necessary because the danger is so great. Or are we going back to pre-COVID pubs and saying, look, as long as the danger is manageable, then there isn't a reason for us all, every single one of us, to have to provide preemptively uh, hard identifying information that, that requires some kind of emergency to justify it. And perhaps part of the political judgment is, the extent to which you see this as an emergency, uh, that the harm is so great that this requirement is justified. And again, interestingly, in the political world, because politicians themselves personally are frequently some of the, the you know most serious victims of the bad behavior, yes. and I have sympathy with that, uh, I think they often feel this is more like a COVID pub. Uh, whereas people on the other side may feel it's more like a pre-COVID pub where that that intervention isn't justified. Yes, and and so so let's so we draw these things together. We, what we noticed there are a couple of, of sort of overall trends that are interesting. One is that the cost of identification is going down enormously because there are more and more parties identifying you from public provided infrastructure to to a lot of other things. And then, and there's also like a commercial trend here because we're talking about social media services here, and the traditional stance of of social media services have been in that yes okay we want real names but we would like not to sort of have to identify everyone or track them uh, you know track their speech at least even if you track them for advertising purposes and we should get back to that in another episode but but you're sort of you're you're uh, you're slightly resisting this but then there are other companies like i you know apple comes to mind uh, mm. apple i think have realized that that uh, both that privacy is a really good uh, stands for them to take but they're also they're also delineating that because when they're saying that you know we will we will not do this we will not do that they're saying it as long as you have your identity with us 
behind uh, yes. the, the sort of apple uh, walled garden. In the garden, uh, we know who you are, but outside of the garden, nobody else will know that you're in the garden. So for Apple, uh, identity is, is increasingly a bundle of their luxury products. They're sort of building your identity with with a lot of different tools and products, et cetera. So there's also a commercial push to identify us uh, in, in some of these circumstances. So just taking all of these trends together and, and trying to paint a picture of where this will go in five to 10 years. Will we be more identified? Will we be less identified? How will we, will there be spaces and domains where we're identified, but there's still hmm. going to be large domains where we can remain anonymous, like in the true names example? How, what's, what's the, where does this go? I, I mean, I think there are potentially two tracks. <laughs> um, so one is a track in which we, we uh, build on this conversation and many others and talk to uh, lots of experts out there in, in terms of the details of identification systems. It's not just internet people say a lot of it is about the mobile phone and telecoms people. So in one track, we, we ha uh, have a, a really good discussion actually, and also bring in human rights lawyers who, who will help us understand you know, the implications for privacy and freedom of expression. We do all of that. And then we do come up with a model, which I think would be horses for courses. It's based on these core fundamental European human rights principles, European Convention on Human Rights principles of necessity and proportionality. And so we would look at, you know, different services and go, what, what is the uh, kind of identifying information that is necessary and proportionate to the kind of harms and problems we're trying to, to deal with? And then you build a model that will will look very different for very different services. Uh, I think that is the reflection of of the real world, uh, the real nature of harms, and and is would be the outcome of a necessity and proportionality test. It never it never says you know uh, everything should always be the same. By definition, that kind of test will come to different conclusions for different services. That's the happy scenario. <laughs> I think the less happy scenario, which I fear is that 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 this is used as a blunt instrument that the something must be done sort of drive is so powerful that that there will be laws passed and they'll just go everyone collects hard identifying information to sign up to services um and in that world you know it will happen and then you'll find the negative consequences oh oh now we've got these big databases that are either in the hands of the government or the evil companies that we hate are oh, we got to now do something else to unravel that or, uh, well, and uh, you'll find that um, the market will be affected in ways that were not necessarily predicted and turn out to be negative in terms of where people are comfortable signing up. And you find that there's a huge market growth in services that are outside of that framework where you can go and sign up without having to provide your identity documents. Uh, and if, if you need to get a VPN to do that, you find there's a big market growth in virtual private networks that allow you to sign up as though you're not in your own country. And then government comes and says, well, now we need to go to the virtual private network providers and make them collect hard identity because, yeah, and you can see where I'm going with this. So I think there's one model, let's say, which is sort of rational work through the complexity and come up with a, a solution which would, you know, sort of be fit for different purposes. The other is to try and find a, you know, the one ring to rule them all, the simple solution, the quick fix, which will not be simple and will have all kinds of knock-on consequences. And that's the one I fear, and I hope, 
If we talk about it a little bit more, we can help contribute to an understanding of why what may seem like a simple quick fix is not actually going to be a simple quick fix. There seems to be another risk here, too, that's interesting. If you go back to the early cypherpunks, if you remember them, when we were tinkering with remailers and onion routing and tour rousing and all that stuff, right? The One of the uh, basic tenets of the beliefs of the cypherpunks was that technology actually strives towards anonymity and that this is something that's inherent in, in the technology, kind of technological determinism, I'd argue. Um, but what, what is interesting is that, that we're now in the midst of another technological shift, sometimes called Web3. I don't know why we do this to ourselves, but we mm. sort of come up with all these and, and sort of the notion of, of using cryptography in a lot of different ways from the blockchain to you know, new kinds of cryptocurrencies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and in fact, that whole new technological wave being driven by cryptography in different ways uh, is to a large extent based, uh, ironically, on an anonymous paper by Satoshi Nakamoto. And, and so we have this new space where anonymity seems to be one of the core values that's developing fast into a decentralized uh, new kind of technological architecture, something we see again and again. It's never steady state technology. And all the things that we've been talking about now are sort of are solidly related to the kinds of social media services evolved in, in a particular phase of the internet's history. If the internet now is, and I think you can debate whether or not this is the case, but if the internet now moving into this decentralized, much more cryptographically driven uh, uh, kind of architecture, uh, that, that will make it much, much, much harder harder. And hence, if the debate is moving in the one ring to rule the mall direction that you describe, the measures will be, have to become much, much more draconian. Uh, the tension between technology and legislative intent seems to increase over time in this particular space. And, and that, I think, risks leading to, for example, banning certain technologies. I would just mm. say that you can't do that. You can't have anonymous doing, you know, that's not okay. And I think it's, it, to me, one possible even plausible scenario would be one in which we see countries start banning technologies that seem to enable much deeper anonymity. Uh, and even if they can also underpin both thick and thin identities and both ephemeral and sustained and persisting identities, the fact that they can also underpin this much more persistent anonymity uh, is going to be uh, such a a threat, really, to, to the way mm. that things work, that, yeah, that, that it's going to be much, much more of a clash than you described. Does that seem yeah. fanciful? No, I think that's possible. I mean, I'm, I'm um, more of a human determinist than a technological determinist, as in, you know, I, I think that the, the technologies that win are the ones that meet human needs and desires um, in all their <laughs> complexity. And so, actually, you know, from the point of view of a, a citizen, what I would really like is for there to be alignment between technology companies and governments in terms of uh, satisfying my needs and desires, permitting things which meet uh, the requirements that I've got. There should be, to the extent that they're aligned and that the regulation is enabling things that, um, broadly speaking, are good for me uh, and that I wish to have, um, that actually is the sort of comfortable <laughs> position to be in. I think there is a risk in the world that you've described that, that um, you know, when I say human determinists, there are different groups of human who have, humans who have different interests. Uh, and so there is potentially a conflict between the, uh, those who we could broadly say are sort of people in a position of power and their interests 
and the population at large. And I think in such a conflict, and this is interesting sort of philosophical discussion to sort of sp- um, uh, spread out, I think the technology companies would generally go with the mass or the technology industry is going to be delivering for the mass, not for the powerful minority. Um, and so this tension in many cases is where the powerful minority doesn't want the masses to have something because it's bad for them or they see it as bad for them or undermining. And that's where I think you get the bans on technology you're talking about. And yes, there is a risk in this space that, you know, the, the masses do want to express themselves freely, uh, don't, you know, want to go in the pub without showing their identity documents, uh, you, you know, um, uh, think that they should be able to say pretty offensive things without without being prosecuted. The those who are in power go no no um, that offensiveness is so serious that I'm going to put these controls in place or as you say on things like um, currencies or financial transactions or all of these things which the internet enables you to do in a freer way than was previously possible there may be uh, resistance pushback and potentially prohibitions on those technologies yeah, and and in the early cypherpunk days you had all of the stuff you have today you have david chaum's diggy cash for example so you had all of that stuff but the 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 outcome there which i thought was really interesting was that it was too complex for people it's just to your point it's not wasn't usable and if there's no yep. usability then you then you lose but it's increasingly usable to the point where you can imagine a, a button uh, or an app you download that consistently creates new pseudonyms for you every time you interface with the outside world and just for the sort of sake of the thought experiment, imagine there was a, a small uh, app called the Anon app, which is yes. an unfortunate name because I think that was the name of the, the fake uh, messaging service, wasn't it? Anon or something. Yeah. Uh, was that, uh, that says, okay, if you download this, um, you will not be identifiable across any of the services you use. We will sort of use different kinds of pseudonyms. We'll sort of log you in, et cetera, et cetera. Downloading that app would be super simple. Would you do it or would you not? Um, I would. So, so again, uh, back to earlier in the conversation, for me, most of the time when I'm using online services, I actually want my identity to be there. I've built my identity over time uh, and it's useful to me. There are very few circumstances under which I personally would want that, uh, uh, that sort of complete anonymity but again that will vary and there are people in much more vulnerable positions than i am for whom this would be essential so so across that broad spectrum internet users there will be people who who would absolutely want that app who would then actually i'm not sure how many people who are uh, set on abuse would necessarily want that app because they have their own techniques already like people who are abusive and serious abusers serial serial and serious abusers will already have their anonymity rig set up but where that sort of app could be useful is those who are vulnerable human rights defenders those who are victims of uh, violence in whatever community they live in etc etc would find that extremely useful but again interesting you pose the question i think for you or i that would be a marginal use case compared with as we are on this podcast now richard allen and nicholas lumbler yeah. you know we want to go out there we want people to associate our words with us as individuals and that's our interest yeah and we should make a plug here by the way for the eff the eff has a course and a set of recommendations on their webpage uh, for uh, anyone who's you know uh, in, engaged in expressing mm-hmm. themselves in in difficult circumstances where you know what are the tools what are the things to think about etc and i think what you know it's the app is an interesting example because you do have some of this in, in current day browsers with the private mode uh, 
uh, or private browsing mode, uh, which is not used that extensively. Uh, people are yeah. happy to have everything stored and to not have to uh, enter all of their details every single time they they go somewhere, etc. So there's a there's an enormous value on the ease of use that identity allows you to to um, to produce. So I think that's right. It's and, and it's and ultimately at the end of the day, maybe that's sort of the the thing here that identity if it's more and more useful will become more and more prevalent on on the internet uh, whereas we will resist the notion of of having to overproduce identity uh, just for the sake of edge cases where identification is uh, necessary for for example law enforcement purposes exactly and i say i think it's this uh, if we leave people with one thought is this question a critical question which is whether you are preemptively demanding storing identity just in case a bad thing happens versus when a bad thing has happened tracking down somebody's identity in order to fix it and that first model the preemptive storing is more typically associated with authoritarian regimes or specific use cases where that's necessary, such as passing a border. Or Spanish hotels, obviously. (laughs) Spanish hotels. The second case (laughs) is much more, I think, typical of the lives that we lead where we're not preemptively required to provide identity information unless and until something has gone wrong. Mm. And at that point you intervene. And I just think that's the prevailing model which has served us well, can continue to serve us well on the internet uh, with with tweaks potentially uh, uh, with some technical uh, um, solutions, but actually most importantly, a, a sort of really honest discussion about how and when we want to enforce the law rather than whether or not we are able to, because we can. Uh, we've just got to uh, decide that we have the will to do that. And if we haven't got the will to do that, then getting everyone to store our identity is not going to help us either. That's true. And and uh, with that, uh, you may or may not have listened to uh, Nicholas Bale, Lundblad and Richard Allen discuss anonymity. Um, <laughs> I am a dog. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this podcast can be found on your website, which is? www.regulate.tech Thank you, and we hope to have you with us for the next episode. Thank you so much. 